We've been in here for three weeks. We took a break last week for Michael, our preaching apprentice, to bring us a really great message from uh, the book of Mark on the Transfiguration. And you all clapped for him. I'm expecting the same today. All right. Why have we been talking about Jude so much? Well, to answer that, you got to think about what is Jude about? And Jude's primarily about three things, God's grace, God's holiness, and God's judgment. And each of those things, what they revolve around, what they are treating, what they are in response to is our sin. So God's grace is the forgiveness of our sin. God's holiness is, is the, our sins, what keeps us from attaining it. And our sin is what we will be judged for, okay? And so that's three weeks on sin. And you may be wondering, why is Eric talking about sin so much? And you look at your spouse and you say, did you tell him what I did? You know, no, I don't have anybody in mind. I think probably the reason that I was compelled to, to preach about Jude in this season is because in the larger Christian calendar, this 40 days leading up to Easter is what we call Lent. And, you know, we don't practice Lent in a formal or official way at this church, but many of you probably practice it. And it's about a lot more than giving up chocolate or Coke for a month. Uh, it's about thinking what you should be thinking leading up to remembering the death of Jesus. So what should I be thinking as I'm nearing the death of Jesus Well, you should be asking yourself, why did Jesus have to die? And the answer is, my sin. Okay, it's because at the cross, God's grace, holiness, and judgment all coalesce. We see them most clearly at the cross, and all of those are dealing with my sin. So we're spending these weeks thinking about our sin, and we're doing that today. Will you you pray with me? Can we begin in prayer? God, would you come before you in humility, knowing that we are a sinful people. And God, you know above all that I am a sinful man. And so I pray that you would use me, sinful though I am, to preach your word this morning to bless these people. And I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Many of you probably saw the movie Silence. Before it was a movie, it was a book by Shisako Endo, Silence. And the, the book and the movie follow Japanese Christians in the 17th century in Japan who, at the time, Christianity and illegal is illegal, sorry, in Japan. Christianity is illegal at the time. And so one by one, Christians and churches are hunted down by the Japanese government, and those Christians are killed. They're martyred. But before they're martyred, each time they're given a decision, a choice, and the choice goes like this. The tribunal takes a picture of the face of Jesus, and they throw that picture at the feet of the person who's standing condemned, and they tell them that if you step on the face of Jesus, you can go free. It's symbolic of denying Jesus. If you would step on Jesus' face, you can go free. And so the story follows just Japanese Christian after Japanese Christian who is given that choice and chooses to honor God, to not step on his face. There's this one sniveling, traitorous Japanese man who each time he is found by the Japanese government, he is brought forward to that same tribunal and they throw that picture of Jesus at his feet. And in the first scene, they give him that choice and he slowly raises his foot and it's just shaking. And then he he brings it down onto Jesus' face. He just wince at it. 
but then he's allowed to go free and he runs off into the woods, into the darkness. And he eventually makes his way back to the church and they painfully choose to forgive him. And he commits himself. He won't do it again, but sure enough, they're found out. And when he's brought before that tribunal, he steps on the face of Jesus again. And it happens a third time. And each time it happens, you want to reach through the pages of the book, if you're reading it, you want to reach through the screen of the movie and you just want to grab hold of them and shake them and say, not this time. Don't do it again. And each time he does. I feel the same way when I read the story in the Gospels of Peter. You know, Peter is this great disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, he is the one on which Jesus builds his church, he says in Matthew 16. And the reason is because Peter, before anyone else, realizes who Jesus really is. Remember in Matthew 16, he says, you, Jesus, are the Christ, the King, the Son of the living God. But then when Jesus needs him most, when Jesus is standing condemned, you remember what Peter does, he denies Jesus three times. He says, I don't know the man. And I think each time I reread those stories in the gospel, before the rooster crows, he denies them three times. Each time as I'm just waiting for that rooster to start crowing, I think maybe this time it's going to be different. You're like, Maybe Peter in this hour when Jesus needs him most is going to stand forward courageously and say, I do know that man. He's the Christ, the son of the living God. And each time he doesn't, he denies Jesus. And I think those stories cause me to reflect on what's inside me. Uh, Because I like to think that if it came down to it, I would boldly proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, despite the consequences. I was in Papua New Guinea, I told you many stories from there, and I met brothers and sisters in Christ in Papua New Guinea who were nearly killed or lost dear friends and loved ones because of their faith in Jesus. And when I shook their hand, I mean, it's like, it's like standing on holy ground. And you wonder, you know, do I have that in me or not? And when you ask yourself that question, what you tend to do is imagine an extraordinary circumstance. You know, your life is on the line. And in that moment, the confession you made in the baptistry, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Would you still be willing to make it in that moment? Or would you become Peter in that moment? Would you deny Christ? You know, it's possible that some of us will experience something like that. You know, I think that um, it's pretty easy to say, no, you'll you'll never experience anything like that. But of course, you know, this week we had the shooting in New Zealand. And I'm reminded when I see that, that we do live in a world where, you know, you could suffer for your faith. That's possible. But Jude's not talking about that. You know, Jude's talking about this church that is not being persecuted. We tend to think when we think of the ancient church that they were all persecuted all the time. That's just not true. Persecution really happened in pockets of the Roman Empire. And Jude's church is not experiencing persecution. There's normal people going about their day, coming to church on Sunday, going back home, going to work. They're a lot like any of us. And so he's saying that question still matters. Would I deny Jesus? And he says, it's not so much that it matters in those extreme circumstances because those are pretty unlikely. Those, that question matters in the most mundane of circumstances. In your everyday life, would you deny Jesus? He says it like this in verse four. This is a verse we've looked at. We're gonna look at a different part of it today. He says, for certain individuals whose condemnation 
was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So pay attention right here. I'm just going to say this as simply as possible. This is what Jude's saying. To sin, immorality. To sin is to deny Christ. That when I sin, okay, when I accept God's grace and then turn to sin, what I have done is deny the gracious one. And so when I sin, I'm not just mistaken, I'm not just wrong, I am Peter in those moments. Okay, that's serious, that sounds pretty extreme, and that's not how we typically think about our sin. How do we think about our sin? Well, I think there's probably three ways in which we think about our sin. The first is in the, the word sin itself. It comes from a, a Greek word that has to do with archery. And the idea is that you aim for the bullseye, and a sin is when you just miss. So you just miss to the right or to the left. So you're, you're aiming for God's holiness, trying to aim your life in that direction, and you just miss. You just pull it to a little to the right, a little to the left. That's sin. And that kind of sin, when we think about it like that, it's pretty easily forgivable. You know, you sinned, but, I mean, you just missed. Like, do better next time. That's the first way we like to think about our sin. The second way is the way the New Testament describes sin. And it's like sin has a capital S. So sin isn't just you missing the bullseye. Sin is the power that makes you miss the bullseye. You know, sin is what the whole world is enslaved to. It is, it is this power that is so great that deals so severely with us with its weapon of choice, death, that Jesus Christ has to die in order to defeat sin and liberate us from its clutches. Okay. That's the second way we like to think about sin. And when it comes to our sin, those are the most convenient ways to think about it because then our sin is pretty easily forgivable and not really our fault. The rest of you, your sin is your fault, but mine's usually not, and it's pretty easily forgivable. All right. But there's this third way to think about sin, and that's what Jude's really challenging us to consider. But it's hard for us to, to consider what Jude says in light of our own sin, and it's much easier when it comes to the sin of others, because in the sin of others, we don't tend to think about their sin as accidental or avoidable or out of their control. We tend to think about the sin of others as rebellious. You know, that they and their conduct are denying the Lord, who is the standard of holiness to which they are called, and their sin is so obviously a rebellion against their master. They're denying, they're stepping on the face of Christ by what they do. Um, those kind of sins don't seem as easily forgivable to us. So a few weeks ago, you were probably following this story in the news. There was a Colorado man, a dad, husband, who was caught in the act of adultery. And when confronted by his wife, you might have followed this story, his pregnant wife, he snapped, killed her, killed her two young daughters. Terrible story. And at the sentencing for this man, he sentenced to life in prison, the father to the slain mom 
the grandfather to those slaying little girls, said in his statement to him, he said, prison is too good for you. And doesn't that feel true? You know, that even if he were, even if he were executed, that that wouldn't be justice. That that would be too good for him. I mean, isn't there a place deep down inside of you that longs for something more, for actual justice for that mom and those little girls? When Jude talks about in verse 13, when he talks about these wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. I don't know exactly who he's talking about, but there's a part of me that hopes he's talking about this guy. And there's a part of me that hopes he's talking about the shooter in New Zealand. And I'm a gracious guy, and I'm a merciful guy. But it seems like we need justice when we hear those stories. And sins like those strike us as outright and obvious rebellion. And when we see them, we don't want God to just wink at sin. We don't want God to just, oh, that's okay. We want God to deal with sin. We want God's justice. Yeah, I'm reminded of the martyrs in Revelation. So these are Christians who were persecuted, who did die for their faith. And we see this scene, John the Revelator sees this scene in Revelation where these martyrs who've gone on before him are looking down at heaven, at those who killed them, who are still alive, still doing just fine. And they cry out to God and they say to God, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? I think part of, you know, one of the proofs that God exists is that each of us in our hearts have this sense that the world is out of balance. And so we long for God to balance those scales. We long for God's justice, but you see it here in the second line of this passage. If you want the justice of God, you will not get it unless he judges the world. You can't have justice without judgment. So judgment looms over the book of Jude really large. And so Jude introduces God to his church like this in verse 5. He says this, you already know this. I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt. He saved them. But later he destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Why does, why does Jude call the day of judgment a great day? Uh, okay, partly it's because of its scope. We're going to see that in the next passage. It's great because it applies to everyone. Everybody gets judged. But also it's great, and we see this in the Old Testament. We see this in the New Testament. We see it in the book of Jude. God's people have always thought about the day of judgment as a great day because they sense, like you do in your heart, that the world is not balanced, that the scales are not right, and that they want God to balance those cosmic scales. And the day that is going to happen is the day of judgment. You know, they long for justice, and the only way we're going to have it is if on some great day, the judge does it. So I think Jude goes on to say this. He says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord's coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them 
of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness, of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people, and notice, I mean, I'm sure you would say this about murderers and terrorists, but that's not how he's talking about here. He says these people are grumblers, they're fault finders, they follow their own evil desires, they boast about themselves, and they flatter others for their own advantage. So does this day sound great to you? Not so much to me. What are Christians supposed to do with all the language of judgment in the Bible, in Jude? God is the judge in the Old Testament for sure. But sometimes we get to Jesus and we're kind of like, oh, we don't have to talk about that God. What we find in the New Testament is that Jesus will judge the whole world. Okay, well, let's not talk about those passages because they make us uncomfortable. And it doesn't seem great. I mean, what am I, what, as a Christian, what am I supposed to do with this? Because I think about Romans 3.23. And this is a passage you know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then you've got Romans 3.24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. What's he saying? We all sin. There has to be judgment. But Jesus is judged for you. Praise God. Right? The judgment is great. The judgment requires the death of his own son. But the good news is you turn out all right in that judgment because of what happened to his son. That does seem like good news. Did you play that game telephone uh, growing up in school where um, you would sit in a circle with people and you would whisper something into your neighbor's ear and they would whisper what you said into the ear of the next person. They would whisper and about halfway around the circle, it's nothing like the original thing that you said. I think that's kind of what's going on in Jude, that he has this sense that the good news is really good, but as it's passed around the circle, as it's whispered from ear to ear, it turns into something that's not actually that good. He says it's a perverted version of grace, and what he means by that is it turns into this good news of the judgment of Jesus on our behalf. It turns into this idea of divine tolerance, that God doesn't care about our sin. And if God is just so gracious and merciful that he doesn't care about my sin, well, then I don't care about my sin. I certainly don't care about your sin. You do you, I'll do me, and we're all good. That's not good news. That's perverted, Jude says. And if we think that way, what it does is it distorts our understanding of how serious our sin is. Not only what our sin does to us, but what our sin does to the holy God who sent his son to die for us. I think what Jude wants you to know is that to sin, whether you're a believer or not, to sin is still to deny Christ. I mean, that's what sin fundamentally is, a desire, uh, sorry, a denial of our Lord who sets the standards. Okay, what does that mean? Does that mean my sin is the same as murder? No, I don't think so. Does that mean the sexual sin described in Jude's church is the same as terrorism? No, I don't think so. And does that mean that our sin can't be forgiven? No, I know it can be. What it means is that when we move immediately from our sin to God's forgiveness without attention to God's great day of judgment, we fail to properly understand what our sin 
actually is, what Paul would call the wages of sin. You know, judgment, think about this. Judgment is the only reality of God that constantly reminds us that all sin is really in one category. It doesn't mean that all sin is equal. It means that all sin is alike. Even when sin is accidental or the result of some power beyond our control, our sin is still a denial of Christ. When we sin, we step on the face of Jesus. And denial of Christ, the thing about that, I'm not so much worried about hell, although hell does loom large in the book of Jude. More, I'm worried about what Jude's going to talk about here in a second, that, that your denial, the problem with denial of Jesus is that once you deny him once, it's much easier to deny him again and again, that denial tends to compound on itself. So how many times does Peter deny Jesus? Three times. How many, how many times did this Japanese Christian deny Jesus? Again and again and again. And so what, what Jude's going to say is that this, this church that he's talking to, it's not like they had too many drinks one night and they made a bad mistake and they're really sorry about it the next day. He says because of their sin, what they do is they reject authority. He said, okay, because of my sin, because I don't want to rid myself of it, because I don't want Jesus Christ to rid my sin from my heart, what I'm going to do is say, well, there's really no standards which my sin is breaking or not meeting. Okay, then he says they give themselves up to it. It's like, well, I'm going to try to resist my sin. No, I'm just going to give myself to it, he says. And this he says, while they're caught up in this denial of Jesus Christ, that instead of confronting that denial, instead of feeling shame for it, what they do is get a license for immorality, they think. It'd be like the police officer pulling you over for speeding, and you say, would you just write me a little note that says I can speed anytime I want? Like, I don't want to actually pay this fine. I'd rather just have that note from you that says I can do this anytime. And so I'm not so much worried about hell, although, again, that does loom large in the book of Jude. What I'm worried about is this last time that he says that the compounding effect of our denials of Jesus Christ make us shepherds who feed only themselves. So I don't have any sheep, but I imagine sheep need to eat. And the image here, and this is one that's common about the body of Christ, is that we are sheep belonging to the good shepherd. And that your job as a child of God is not just to be a sheep that chews the food. Your job is to feed God's sheep. And our sin makes us ineffective in that central task. You know, I think about all the good volunteers we have here at Highland who are doing great work all over the city. I think about all the generous givers we have here at Highland that give so much so that we can do great work. And when we think about what we contribute to the kingdom, we're often thinking about what we do with our time and our energy and what we do with our money. I think what Jude would call us to pay attention to is if what I'm doing isn't producing fruit, it's possible it's not because I'm not giving it enough time. It's possible it's not because I'm not giving it enough money. It's possible it's not producing fruit because I am caught up in sin and that makes what I am offering to the world not nutritious. Yeah. Like, yeah, I can feed myself with that and think I'm good, but when I try to offer something to somebody else who's in need, they're going to chew on that and say, this is worthless. The other day in Bible class, I was reminded of this great quote. We've got a great Bible class teacher in Bridge Builders, and this quote's from C.S. Lewis. It's in the Screwtape Letters. Has anybody read the Screwtape Letters? If you haven't, you need to. It's a fictitious correspondence between two demons. 
who are trying to influence this good Christian man to do bad. And the older demon is Screwtape. He's advising the younger demon, Wormwood. And Wormwood's really upset because he wants the Christian man to do something really bad. Like, he wants him to murder somebody. Because that would really help his cause, the devil's cause. And so Screwtape writes to him, and, and he's, he's trying to encourage him because he hasn't got him to murder yet. All he can get him to do is at night, when he should be praying before he goes to bed, he picks up a deck of cards and he plays cards instead. All right, so this is what he says. He says, you will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you're anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. God. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder's no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. And on this, Jude would agree with the demons. Okay, what's all this talk about judgment about? Here's what I think it comes down to. The judgment of God is essential. You should long for the judgment of God because we do live in a world that is unjust. And as much as we do to contribute to the justice of this world, and I think we should, True justice will not be had until that great day when those scales are balanced once and for all. You should be praying and longing for God's justice. But you should also be rejoicing in God's justice because what God's justice does for the body of Christ is it is the reality of God that challenges us despite our standing in the grace of God to still consider how our behavior is an affront, is a denial of the lordship of Jesus. And to be self-examining all the time. And not only self-examining, but I want to examine my brothers and sisters because I care about them and love about them. And so I'm not only going to be personally cautious, I'm going to be corporately concerned. I'm going to be worried about the body of Christ. Jesus says it like this. When it comes to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we should be merciful to those who doubt and we should save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Right? Okay, he's talking about this balance that you're not always gonna come and hit people over the head with your Bible and say, you terrible sinner, let me save you from the fire. Right. Sometimes you're gonna come in mercy and grace and understanding because you're a sinner as well. But you better come. Right? I, think, I think what often happens is we become paralyzed by the reality of our own sin that we never do anything. You know, Jesus says we should remove the plank from our own eye before we help our brother with the speck in our eye, but then we are to help our brother. <laughs> you know, we don't just stop, well, I got all these planks in my eye. Yeah, I still got my planks. Okay, we are to help our brother. Judgment is a good thing for the church because it makes us personally cautious, but it makes us concerned for our brothers and sisters. I mean, you want to be here at church because these people not only care about your business, they not only care about your kids, they not only care about your marriage, they care most of all about that moment when you stand before the holy God on that great day. 
You know, they care about your soul. They want you to get there and for God to look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me end with this thought. And that's this. I, I do think as you read the Bible in its entirety, that what you find is that God's judgment is a severe reality, but that God's judgment is matched and even surpassed by his mercy and his grace. And we see that here at the end of Jude when Jude leans really hard into God's mercy and love at the end. He's been talking about, he's been talking about perverted grace and unholiness and ungodliness and judgment that's coming. And then he says this, but you dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. And one of the most beautiful scenes in scripture is after Peter denies Jesus three times and Jesus is crucified and resurrected. You know, Peter's feeling pretty worthless about himself. And so he goes and he goes, does what? Does anybody remember? He goes fishing. And in Churches of Christ, we're really big on apostolic example. And so, you know, guys, if you want to go fishing this afternoon, just tell your wife, well, Peter did it. I got to do it. And I think you can imagine this guilt that Peter feels, right? So he's stepped on the face of Jesus three times when Jesus needed him most. And then Jesus in his resurrected body comes to this beach and he looks out and he sees Peter fishing because Peter doesn't know what else to do and he calls Peter to him and Jesus gets this little fire started and he's got breakfast cooking on the fire. And Peter comes up and he's thinking about what he did to Jesus, how he denied Jesus. And you can imagine his own face is just hanging low. He's so ashamed of himself. And Jesus looks at Peter and you remember what he says? He says, Peter, go feed my sheep. And I think if you read that in light of Jude, what Jude is saying is that our sin makes it really hard for us as the body of Christ to do what he's called us to do, to feed his people, right? Our sin gets in the way of that, but God in his grace and mercy can give you and me, sinners alike, what we need to do the job he's called us to do. You know, what we offer really is non-nutritious, but by the grace of God, it can be so good. That's why you're here. As you're in this season of Lent, as we're heading up to Good Friday, Easter Sunday, it's important to remember that we are heading in that direction because of our sin. And we need to be reminded that our sin is not just accidental, it's not just avoidable, it's not somebody else's fault, that our sin is a denial of Jesus Christ. And that our denial deserves to be judged. And yet you and I, even in what we deserve, are not beyond the grace of God. And if you're curious about that, track down Peter and ask him. And because we know his grace can take care of our sin, we're willing to live as his slave, as Jude says. Because of his promises, we're willing to trust his judgment and because of his holiness, we know that his judgment will be just. And so we long for it. We are sinners, but God in his grace makes a way. So leave your life of sin. Leave your life of sin. To him who's able to keep you from falling 
to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority throughout all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing. We fall down, we lay our ground.